You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite you to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we will be picking up in Matthew chapter 5 where we left off this last week. Uh, we, will, uh, we will kind of continue our journey through the first gospel that is the first of the first four books of the New Testament, known as gospels. Literally, that just means good news, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this is the first book in the New Testament, and they, uh, this disciple, this follower of Jesus, Matthew, introduces us to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we're at, we're at a, a significant and, and, and frankly, a very famous part of this gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount. That is the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of this particular book are, are in many ways the most famous teachings in the entire world, the most famous teachings of Jesus, the, the most expounded upon, the most studied teachings of Jesus. There are more books and there are libraries filled with comments and explanations for what Jesus is doing here. And so Matthew is introducing us to Jesus in a very specific way. For, for the people he's speaking to, people like himself who are of, of Jewish descent, there's a story of a, a redeemer, a deliverer, that is Moses, who, who by God's grace led God's people out of bondage in Egypt. And the first thing that they did after they crossed the wilderness is, is that Moses comes to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and comes down from the mountain and delivers God's law, God's word. And so Matthew is telling us a deliberate story that right after Jesus was baptized, doing something that you would expect sinners to do, he, he's, he already is starting to occupy the space that sinners occupy, both in their lineage, but, but even in his practice. And then he wanders in the desert, and what's the first thing he does after he comes out of the desert? He steps up on a mountain and teaches and brings God's word. All of this is supposed to help us see clearly that Matthew wants us to know this, this Jesus is, is someone special. This Jesus is the true and better Moses. He is the real deliverer. And so he teaches us about his kingdom. That is, what it would be like if God were sovereign over everything. If, if we were to experience the reign and rule of Jesus over every single area of our life, this is what it would look like. And so this is what Jesus is teaching. Now, up to this point, we've seen the, the internal, that is the, the deep teaching of Jesus that applies to the heart of the people, but also the communal nature of the Sermon on the Mount. That is, ultimately, it's written to the hearts of people who are living in community. Now, I, I'm, I'm quoting a, a fairly famous theologian when I say, when I kind of paraphrase here, like, I tend to have the most trouble with Jonathan Land. That's the person I have the most trouble with. And, and while the Sermon on the Mount speaks to that, that, that the depths of our own hearts are the places where we need the most grace and transformation and renewal, in that sense, it's not solely about me as an individual, it's also about a people. And so we've seen up to this point the, the word brother over and over and over again, speaking to these people as they're to relate to family. So we're, in this sense, kind of walking through this most famous teaching that, that speaks to the heart of people, their very existential self, and at the same time, the way that they are formed and are living in a community under Jesus' reign. So let me recap. Up to this point, we've kind of got a, what I would describe as like a picture of integrity, that is literally righteousness, that we're going to be living by under God's kingdom. And, and we have integrity. We saw last week we have integrity in our desires. That is that like Jesus says, you're not to give your desires or your body to a person you wouldn't give your life to. That is, quite literally, we saw last, last week that, that we're not to be physically naked with anyone that we wouldn't 
be willing to be personally naked, right? Relationally and existentially naked. We would never want to do with our own lives what ultimately, or excuse me, we, we would in lust and, and in these kind of broken, disintegrated, literally, relationships, we, we often demand of others and their bodies what we won't do with our own lives. But we also see there's integrity of words. In that sense, don't do anything with your words that you wouldn't do with your whole life. We saw that to, to speak of someone as a fool, like a nothing, to, to have disdain for someone in our words but also even last week we saw to, to even speak promises, to say yes or no. The same thing, we're called to a, a righteousness, an integrity, a oneness. Right? That's what the word integral or integrity means, right? It's, it's a oneness. That is, it's the same. Uh, to have personal integrity means that I'm the same here as I am over here or over there. And so he says, don't, in that sense, do anything with your words to say yes or no that you aren't willing to give your life to. That's what righteousness is. That's what integrity is. And so this week we see a picture of integrity with respect to revenge or retaliation in our enemies. Next week we'll even see that picture of, or in the weeks to come, we'll see a picture even of, he says, don't even, don't even give to the poor out of a sense of superiority or out of a, a vainglory, but instead out of genuine love. So Jesus has a, an authority he is speaking by and invites us to experience, and we'll wrap up this chapter beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us what is expected of his disciples. He tells us what his kingdom is going to look like. And he even, in this case, we see here, tells us how perfect his kingdom is. Now this is in many ways a fulfillment or an illustration of something that's later recapped. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul tells the Galatians this very kind of thing. He says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill, hear that, the law of Christ. Right? As though there was a law that is somehow connected to Christ. Now we don't know in this sense, we don't really know 
There's, there's no place where Jesus stops and says, you know, thou shalt, right, fulfilling my law. Instead, we see this, this picture of this perfect righteousness and, and the way that the law of God reflects God's heart and, and even pressed down into the hearts of his people, in some sense, is like what Christ demands, what Christ expects of his disciples, and so Paul, in telling the Galatian people as he's closing his letter, encouraging to, to them to care for one another, to welcome one another, to, to build one another up, he says in, in that sense also, you'll be bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another. And in so doing, you're obeying a law. 1 Corinthians 9 says it this way, to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but instead under the law of Christ, in order that I might win those who are without the law. Speaking of how he would live according to and under the law of Christ so that others would be won by it. We saw this uh, some time ago in, in the book of James. He says, so speak and so act as though we're to be judged by the law of liberty. Kind of a, a paradox. For one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and then abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all that he does. And so Jesus here lays out in his first and most famous teaching what his kingdom will look like and what the people who live in his kingdom will appear to be. So there's two sections here that we just read. I want to kind of walk through them. But by the end of the time to our time together, in the end of this chapter even this morning, I want you to come away with a few things. One, I want you to see a very clear picture of Jesus and how perfect and how righteous he is. In fact, perfect and righteous, as we saw earlier, beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. For, for us, that means that it's a righteousness and perfection that literally exceeds the most righteous person we can ever imagine. Second thing, after we kind of see the picture of Jesus, his perfection, I want us to see, and, and I don't want to be shy about this because this is where it lands. It says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if there's any of you in this room who read that and, and something like some joy like kicked up in you, like, yes, I am so, thank you, Jesus. I have been trying to tell everyone how perfect I am. Thank you, right? If, if, that, if something in you like jumps up and, and goes, oh, I, I'm so glad I'm, I, someone sees how perfect I am, right? Then this, then this will be a problem for you. But for the rest of us, and I think you've probably felt this weight throughout the entirety of the Sermon Amount up to this point, and you'll see it almost in every bit of Jesus' teaching. When I say to you, you must be perfect, there's no joy. There's an, there's an immediate despair. There's kind of like a, what are you, what are you talking about? And so the second thing I want us to see is, in fact, how impossible it is for us to be perfect and righteous by Jesus' standards here. But the last thing I want you to, to be able to celebrate here in light of who Christ is, how we begin to actually long for this rightly, and maybe even we begin to see fruitfulness in this way. Because after all, the last one is important. If you're naturally crushed by the weight of Christ's perfection, it will lead to one of two things. And for many of you, you'll be in the first. You will spend your life struggling to measure up. Every room you'll walk into, you have a chip on your shoulder. You'll try to prove yourself. Everyone you ever meet, you're trying to impress. No one really knows you. You have your, you have your greatest hits on your resume rehearsed 
and memorized, and you can slip them into any conversation at any given moment. And ultimately, that will lead you to a desperate place that won't satisfy. Or number two, you'll feel the weight of your own inadequacy, and you'll look to Jesus in desperation, and you'll receive everything you need. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you where we're going, even though we know it's impossible to be perfect, for those of us who are born again by faith, there is something in us, now that we've been invited into this new kingdom, that we long for that perfection. At the very least, for many of you, as we've described the the expectations Jesus has for his disciples, even if you're not a believer, I'm really grateful you're here. Um, As you read this, you'll at least see the beauty in it, because this is what you wish everyone else was like. Right? This is what you've been expecting of people your whole life. Right? Like, why aren't people perfect? Right? When you, like, yes, absolutely. Right? I mean, forget, not me. That's crushing to me, but I wish people would be nicer to me. Right? I wish people would be kinder to me. I wish people wouldn't use me and exploit me. I wish people would be perfect to me, frankly. And so you see the, the moral and virtuous beauty in this because you know you wish people would do this in your own life. You've been expecting it of everyone. So in the first section, you see a picture of righteousness or goodness or integrity, beginning in verse 38 all the way to verse 42, a picture of returning good in the face of evil. So he says, you've heard it said. Now, this is the fifth of the sixth we call these antitheses. That is, Jesus is saying, you heard it said. At the beginning, he was quoting actual commandments. But then he starts to quote, as we saw last week, he's starting to quote just Regular, like teacher teachings that were, we can find now in the, in the Mishnah, uh, that is, that are rabbinical teachings of, of rabbis of that day. They were, they were just regular teachings. So, in essence, he, he, he isn't saying it is written that, That's, which is what he says at other times, but he's saying, You've heard it said. And so he says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Now, this is paraphrasing right out of the first five books of the Bible an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But, and this is the antithesis, he's done this four times, he's going to do it two more times in this chapter. But I say to you, now, remember, this is a position of authority. I gave an example like, you know, you have heard it said, you have heard it said when driving down the interstate, stay right except to pass. But I say to you, right, what am I already saying to you? What am I already implying? That I somehow have authority over the interstate. Oh, wouldn't it be great if that were true, right? But he says, you've heard it said, this authoritative teaching, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is, he's not disparaging this. This, this would have been, a, a, think of this as like the, the teaching of the hospitality codes that we find in the first five books of the Bible. This teaching, in this sense, when you live by this, it prevents you from revenge, right? Because if someone does something bad to you or if someone owes you something, this would have been the way to, to limit you from exacting more than was actually owed. Now, this, again, this is a picture of God's heart for us, that we would thrive, because we all know that's exactly what happens, right? You can say whatever you want to. We cry for justice all the time, but the best we can hope for in a broken and fallen world is an approximation of justice. Because every time you and I cry out for justice, we might have righteous motives for just a moment, but the minute, it, like the minute we get involved, we don't really want justice. We want vengeance, we, there's part of us like if, if someone stole $100 from you, we don't just want $100 back. We want them to pay for the fact that they stole from us. And so this would have been a teaching that 
that would have been known by most of these Jewish people to like, this keeps me from being vengeful and vindictive. And so Jesus says, it's not just that you shouldn't be vengeful. It's not just that you shouldn't seek revenge. It's not just that you should stop in, in your desire for retaliation. I say to you, don't even resist the one who is evil. And he gives a, a list of different examples of how this might look. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak. Someone sues you for something, let him have your cloak as well. Give them more than even what they sued you for. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, let me do a little bit of explanation here because some of these don't really, these aren't ways of speaking, these aren't turns of phrase that we would use regularly. And the first one is the most famous, is that if someone in that sense slaps you in the right cheek, the phrase, turn to him the other also, turn to him the other cheek. And I'm certain you've probably heard this. Um, I'm, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be shocked if you hadn't. Um, I don't want to admit how I came across this, but somebody shared this um, on Twitter two days ago. Elon Musk texts, or te what, you don't text on Twitter. See, I don't know what I'm doing here, right? I was born in the 80s. I'm getting there. Just give me a little while. I'll be caught up when the new thing, I'll be caught up with what's cool now when the new thing comes around, right? He says, instead of giving us the just punishment that our sins deserve, in that sense, Oh, or no, oh, this is my interpretation. This is, that wasn't Elon Musk. Elon Musk says, the limbic instinct for vengeance is incredibly, that sounds more like Elon Musk, right? The limbic instinct for vengeance is incredibly strong. Indeed, thank you. Which is why turn the other cheek is such a powerful idea, as it always ends in a cycle of retribution. Thanks, Elon. I mean, I hope I mean, this, is, this is where he becomes a Christian, Right? But think of it as, instead of giving us the just punishment that our sins really deserved, Christ has won us over by giving us himself. That is, instead of responding in retaliation, hear the good news in every one of these examples, Christ has, in this sense, turned his other cheek to us. Now, that deserves some explanation, right? So if you think about the cheek, the cheek would have represented something specific for an Eastern culture. Now, we're more Western and individualistic, but the cheek in this sense, it still makes sense. Like, if you hit someone in the cheek, like, that's not, that's a special act of, of violence, right? Like, if you punch someone to hurt them, that's one thing. But when you slap someone on the cheek, you're not, you're not trying to hurt them. You're trying to demean them, Right? You're trying to insult them in a public way, right? Or even if it's not public, that's just like, well, that is a disrespectful thing, right? And so think of it as the, the cheek in that sense is, is like the location of your own dignity. But that's also why in, in Eastern cultures, the cheek would have represented something as well, that the place where you kiss. Now, we don't greet this way, right? Even we saw this, James encourages the Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss, right? You know, do, do what you feel you have to do, right? That's uh, we, were, we were going through the book of James in the middle of a COVID lockdown, so that, that's all right, that's interesting. But, but think in terms of like, th this would have been regular, a regular practice that you would kiss one another and greet one another on the cheek, right? We have, we have, we're, we have much more dense bubbles now, right? That sounds crazy to some of you. But for the sake of argument, imagine then that this would have been a location of kind of your dignity, that someone can either strike you and insult you massively, or someplace that you could welcome a greeting, that you would, in that sense, show how much you love and care for one another. And so what Jesus is saying here is profound. He's not just saying, let them get away with it. 
oh, it's much worse than that. He's not just saying, don't be vengeful. It's much harder. He's saying that if someone insults you, that is, even if someone attacks your very dignity, leave the door open for reconciliation. If someone attacks your very dignity, leave yourself open to be made right to them. Leave them the cheek open that they might be brought back and won back over. In that sense, kiss you on the cheek. The other explanations he gives us is if someone sues you, that is if like someone rightly like has a, a claim against you, he said, don't just settle with them for what you owe. Give them more. So symbolically here, imagine if you didn't have much, if someone, I mean, you, you get the picture here of like, if you don't have much, right, uh, this is what you get sued for. If you have a lot, someone might sue you, you know, for a house, right? But if you don't have much and they start, if someone starts suing you for your clothes, you're in a tough spot, right? But he's saying, even in a tough spot, even if clothes are all you have, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Almost in this, in this regard here, you're almost naked at that point. But if someone says you owe them a garment of clothes, right? maybe you ruined their garment of clothes by something you did, if they rightly want justice, he says, don't just settle for that. Give them more. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, now at this time, these, these people in Jerusalem would have been living under Roman occupation, and Roman soldiers would have the, the lawful right to exact any sort of service from any citizen. It was a, a constant reminder of how awful things were, and a constant reminder of how they were wishing someone would come and overthrow the Romans. And Jesus says, even the people you hate, these occupiers, these, these empirical guards that have the ability to abuse you and to humiliate you and make you carry burdens, he said at that time they were required to at least walk a thousand paces. If they make you walk a mile or a thousand paces, be willing to go too. If someone begs from you, give. If someone wants to borrow from you, don't refuse them. Do you hear this? pretty comprehensive illustration of what it looks like to sacrificially and selflessly give to someone and to give to people that in that here that you don't really have any reason to do so happily the people you wouldn't like and so i'm telling you that instead of jesus giving us what we deserve and exactly what we deserve Christ instead has won us over by giving of himself. So I want you to see the picture of the kingdom here. He's, he's pointing to something. This is how God relates to you. And you've heard it said that you shouldn't be vengeful, right? You've heard it said, don't walk around with a grudge. You've heard it said, don't retaliate. But I'm telling you, my kingdom's better than that. In my kingdom, we don't even hold grudges. Here's the, a practical principle, I think, here that I think we can take from this. Being reconciled to and winning a person over is more important than getting even. For those of us in Christ, this new life, this new reality, Jesus is bringing to us and making all things new, this resonates deeply with us. That it is better to win, I'm borrowing from language, we'll see when we get to Matthew chapter 18, but it's better to win someone over than it is to get even with them. 
being reconciled to and winning a person over is what's really important here. Did you, did you hear that? You've heard it said, live justly, live fairly, pay what you owe, don't go above and beyond and exacting more than is owed. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, that's so far beneath what I'm about. I don't just exact what is owed. I love and win over the enemy. There's a second part here, beginning in verse 43. You have heard it said, again, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this, this is where this is a weird kind of corruption of the, of the rabbinical tradition. Right out of Leviticus, you would have seen a, you have heard it said, love your enemy, at, or excuse me, love, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the rabbinical tradition kind of like flirted with it removed the as yourself and, and added something that made people feel better, like, okay, love your enemy, or excuse me, love your neighbor, but it's all right if you hate your enemy. Just don't hate your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But your enemy, you don't have to love him. But I say to you, verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemies and then pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Did you hear it? He's connecting their life with, with the kingship of God. You're in a new kingdom. You live under a new reign and rule. You live in a new way. And so, don't just love your neighbors. And then he goes on, kind of expounds upon it quite a bit. Even people who don't live in God's kingdom, even people who don't love and trust God, they do that. If you love the one who loves you, what reward is there, right? He's picking to where, like he did in the last couple of antitheses, he's pointing to this end time eschatological, like end of being, right? Like the end of this story, there's a reward. There's a, there's a God who judges and evaluates all things. And so what reward is there just to love people like people who are not living in God's kingdom love one another? Instead, do something that, instead of just being like the Gentiles, do something more. And then he, in the climax of it, he, he says, therefore, as if to say, and therefore, in light of all that I've gone through, all these six antitheses, I expect you to be perfect. I expect you to be perfect as, like, in the same way that God your Father is perfect. And so, in loving of enemies, did you hear that? We reflect the fatherhood of God. We reflect that we, right, the apple has not fallen far from the tree. When we love our enemies we look at people the way that God looks at his enemies. Think of it this way. In light of the, other, other, in light of the, the list of otherworldly expectations for this kingdom, loving your enemies is otherworldly. Loving your friend is not. Loving your friend, loving people, and we saw this last week, like if, if, you, if you just desire the benefits of a person, that's lust. But when you love and care for the person, now you're living in a more excellent way. And so to simply like the benefits that a person brings isn't otherworldly. It's not supernatural. It's the most natural. In fact, it's the most selfish thing you can do. I, I, I share this regularly, right? Like uh, if I hang out with you, and we're friends because every time we hang out, you take, me to buy, you, know, you take me and buy me ice cream, right? And I just really want to hang out with you because every time we hang out, you buy me ice cream. Hint, hint, right? But if that's the only reason I hang out with you, I don't love you. I love ice cream. And you're just the deliverer. You're just the mechanism. You're the tool. I've objectified you such that I get what I really want. 
And so we saw that last week, we see it here again. If you're just loving people because they have a benefit, they, they make you feel less lonely, or they, they, you derive some sort of pleasure or, or some sort of blessing out of it, then, then you don't really love that person. You just love the benefit, and you're using that person to get it. And how then are you any different than the pagan, the tax collector, the person who, the tax collector representing the worst of the worst, the person who had betrayed his people for their own benefit? What more are you doing than even the Gentiles would do? That's not what your father looks like. God shows us a love that is otherworldly by loving his enemy and making us his friends. That's the father, that's the father's heart. That's the, the heart of God the Father towards his people. We're meant to say, like, well, how does God treat his enemies? How does God respond to his enemies? And you and I are meant to think of not someone else. We're meant to realize in our own hearts how we, at the very depths, are rebellious against him. Maybe, maybe you don't see that. Here's, I, just, I can speak for myself. Uh, there are times in my own life, there are times in my own life that I have done and said things that are contrary to God's purpose for the people around me. Right, I, even my, my own wife, right? Like, when I think, like, what's God's plan for my wife? That she would thrive, that she would be encouraged, she would be built up. There are times I have done and said things that are utterly antithetical to God's plan for that person. I mean, maybe today, even, maybe, like. There are times that I have done and said things utterly antithetical to what God has for even you or the people in my life. And I think you would probably resonate with that. You probably would, if you were to look and think about what the Father's heart is for the people around you and then realize your influence on them and the extent to which you've actually gotten in the way, now you realize what's being said here. That we are the enemies of God. That we regularly would rather use people than love them like God does. At the very least, he's simply saying that that as we love enemies, not just the people that are our friends, we're demonstrating a, a transcendent, otherworldly love. Because if you have just enough love for your family and friends, then you don't have a kingdom love. Your kingdom is of yourself. Maybe even practically speaking, I would say it this way, like when you see an enemy, you at least see them as you would a friend. In other words, can you at least understand how your enemies ended up that way? Can you at least relate to how your enemies ended up, who they are and what they're doing? Or when you look at them, you, you, you can't imagine yourself doing or saying the things that your enemies have done. Because when you see an enemy like a friend, like you, you know this, you have good friends who do things, and as a good friend, you're like, oh, it makes sense. He's under a lot of stress, right? Or she's going through a difficult time. That's what a good friend would do, not to justify their actions. Sometimes friends do that, but, but at least to say, I care about this person. I can see what they're going through. And so practically, he's asking us to see friends the way we see enemies, that when we see an enemy, we can go like, I get where they're coming from. I get what it would be like. If, if, I, if I had lived their life, if I had been born into the situation in which they were born, if I had been raised in the environment in which they were raised, if I had faced some of the circumstances they faced, 
it could easily, by the grace of God, just been me that way. Or when you look at a person, do you think, I, I am so much better than that person. I would never do that thing. So let's kind of turn towards like the applications here for this text. We get a picture of what the kingdom was like. We get a, a picture of what Jesus is like, even just through his perfect teachings. The word that I used a couple of weeks ago is, in these antitheses, we see gracious impossibilities. These things expected of us, expected of the followers of Jesus, are graciously impossible. Well, what do I mean by that? That is that they are graciously impossible in that when we see how impossible they are, that in and of itself is a grace. When we realize how unattainable that is, that in and of itself is an experience of God's grace. In fact, if you were to look at these expectations, to to look at people purely, without lust, right? to look at people as friends and expect the best and welcome them to, back to kiss your cheek. Like, when you realize how impossible those things are, you're actually starting to experience a grace. You're actually starting to experience God's plan for you, namely that he won't leave you there. He wouldn't have drawn your attention to it if ultimately he didn't want to soften you with it and draw you back to himself with it. We saw this in the, in the Gospel of John, uh, the, maybe the nicest way to see the, kind of the hardness of how impossible these things are. Uh, I, I, you know, maybe the gracious way to say it, we saw in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, is this, that like soft preaching makes for hard people. Hard preaching makes for soft people. And it actually might be a grace that we come up against the very hard and impossible teachings of Jesus so that it would soften us. So practically, who are you trying to convince that you have no flaws? I'll ask it this way. Who are the people you don't want to really know you? Who are the people you're hiding your true self from? It might be in that place, Jesus is pressing your own hard-heartedness into his righteousness and perfection that you would be softened by it. Now, I wouldn't wish that on you, right? <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, who would, who would wish, like, running into a brick wall that, on, on, on a front? Like, that's just not, I, I wouldn't wish that on you. But that's the kind of grace that God shows, that he's willing to take the hard-hearted and press them against his very self until they break. And what you might experience as like a crushing, a shattering, and a breaking, a rock bottom, is actually a grace. The Lord's softening you. He's making you more like him. And so I pray as we face these gracious impossibilities, this is a weird thing to pray, I pray you are devastated by Jesus' demands, but you begin to experience deliverance by Jesus' deeds. That is, you see what he expects of you, and you are crushed by it, but then you see what he says about you, and it's done for you, and you're made new by it. His very speaking on these topics shows that he has righteousness and perfection in his grasp. 
That is, he has the thing that you and I need. We saw this from the Beatitudes, even to here. These are descriptions, not prescriptions, right? At least not in any sort of hopeful way, right? Like, just imagine, just imagine if that's like a, I don't know, imagine that being an instruction, right? I, I, I need you, hey guys, glad you came. This week, I need you to be perfect, okay? Perfect. You, perfect, perfect, right? Like, who in this room would be encouraged by that? Who in this room would walk away going like, yeah, yes, perfect. Never done it in my whole life, but this week, he said to do it, right? I, I sometimes I'm baffled. Some people are, are kind of like, oh man, I lo-, you know, one of the ways that I would say, if you're, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian in this room, um, I, I want you to feel the weight of this because many times one of the things that we kind of push back on is we say like, oh, I lo- I, you know, Jesus is great. I love his teachings. Jesus was a good teacher. And if anyone ever tells you that, Jesus, oh, Jesus was a great teacher, you're like, you've never read Jesus' teaching, right? You know, welcome class. Today, the lesson is be perfect. But that's not a good teacher. That's not, and so in that sense, if, if you've never, if someone tells you, I love how Jesus was a good teacher, they probably have never actually read the teachings of Jesus. Because he's showing us something that we can never attain. And that actually sets us free. He sets us free by showing us a need for a righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. After all, your standard, I mean, we, we, have, we have just reasonable standards, don't we? Hey, this week, if you could just be, like, not terrible, right? If you could just be a not bad mom or dad this week, that's, we might pat ourselves on the back, right? Like, just get through. But notice, we would miss out on how good Jesus is. That standard is woefully low. And he shows us that to settle for that will never give us pleasure, it will never satisfy. It will never fulfill our longings. He shows us a grace by, by revealing to us a, a need for a righteousness that you and I could never achieve. And that, believe it or not, sets us free. And over the last chapter, he's been systematically disassembling it, right? If you're like, well, I'm, I got it kind of figured out. You're like, yeah, lust is, lust is, is just as liable to judgment as, as adultery. Ooh, Right? In a pornified, you know, a por- the pornification of our culture. It's everywhere around. Like, like, no one would be like, oh, yeah, totally, I'm clear. I'm clean. No good. I mean, I'm, I'm, no problem, right? If you're like, well, hey, you know, but, I'm, I'm, but I don't do that. I'm, I'm better than those people. Oh, cool, yeah. Are you angry at someone? Are you holding a grudge against someone? That's liable to the judgment, he says here. Do you get the picture? He's systematically dis- disassembling our own self-righteousness. Because when we realize we can't do it, that's when we win. When the law crushes and undoes us, that is when Jesus is rightly worshipped. And Jesus interprets this crushing law with authority, doesn't he? He's like, yeah, it's worse than you think. He interprets it such that it's completely impossible. And over the last few weeks, if you didn't think it was impossible, right, the last verse just kind of like is the climax. But he's showing us how perfect God is. He's showing us how perfect God's plan for us is. And he shows us that the perfect heart of God is visible in this. He shows us what righteousness looks like when it seeps deep down into your soul and mine. This isn't a new law Jesus is giving. 
This is God's law pressed into the cracks of our own heart. The most self-righteous person in the world would be undone and crushed by what Jesus says here. No one's righteous. No, not one. So, how are your motives for doing the right thing? Are they selfish? God judges that too. You know, well, I don't, I don't speed. Probably for selfish motives, right? So, in this, in this text, one of the most powerful applications is that you can think you're good so long as you, so, so long as you can set a standard that's under your control. You're still God and ruler over your own life because you're meeting a standard that you've set. Here's the interesting, just a side note here. Um, he shows us that, that obedience without the right motives is just as awful as disobedience. This is, this is really important for a bunch of Midwesterners, right? Because, like, we actually run the opposite way. If you're like, hey, I, I didn't want to, but I did the right thing. And we actually celebrate that. Like, you, you will actually be pat on the back for that. Right? And by all means, it's great if you, if you obey things you don't really want. But Jesus says, that's the problem. That isn't something you should celebrate. You shouldn't say, well, I obeyed, even though I didn't want to. You should say, why is my heart so corrupt? Why can't I want the things that God wants? When this settles in deeply, you stop celebrating that and you start mourning it. You stop going, oh, yeah, I, you know, I stuck it out. Instead, you're, you're meant to go like, I, 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 can't, I can't want and love the right thing. And Jesus says that real righteousness is pressed down into the heart. I'm getting ahead of myself, but he provokes even the Pharisees in later chapters, saying just because the outside of a thing is clean doesn't make it clean. Think of it this way. Under the law, perfection is all there is. You either meet it or you don't. And progress isn't to be celebrated. If this is what God expects and this is what God demands, then this is all there is. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no consolation. Well, you almost did it, right? Good try. But I think this sets us up for what we find in Jesus. If under the law, perfection is all there is and progress is worthless, then we celebrate that under grace, perfection's impossible. And so therefore, progress is celebrated. That's one of, the, one of the best things I, I get to tell parents on, on a regular basis. Um, I had really godly, loving parents um, and they set a great example. Uh, but I don't think they did a really great job of showing me how they got that way. And so they were really godly and great, but I was like, well, if that's what you have to be, then I'm never going to get there. I don't know how they got there. They didn't do a good job of showing me like, how they were sanctified to that point. I didn't get to see it. And so I get to say to parents all the time, you don't have to be a perfect example for your kids. Jesus is already doing that for you. And he's a lot better at it than you, than you are. They don't need an example of perfection. Jesus nailed that one. They need an example of repentance. And so this is the beautiful thing. Like even think, zoom out. In our church, we don't need an example for perfection. Stop hiding. Stop pretending. Jesus is better at it than you are. The examples and the experience of grace that we have means that our examples, like right, the ones we follow are the examples of repentance. Now, 
go on this. I'm getting ahead of myself, but practicing righteousness in public. You'll see that for the next couple of weeks. But we are profoundly aware of our inability to be perfect. And yet simultaneously, we're profoundly aware that we are made perfect in Christ. That Christ, in showing us our imperfection, is inviting us to need the thing that he wants to give us anyway. So that under grace, when we see how absolutely impossible perfection is, we see how much we need the perfection of Jesus. Think of it this way. We love to make enemies into corpses. Jesus was made a corpse to make his enemies into friends. Jesus looks at his enemies and lays down his life for them and makes them into friends. I I love the language here. Uh, It's the language of family. You hear the language of brother. You'll see it for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we're we're doing this as a family. I think that's so profound because you can't pick your family. (laughs) Like, and many of you are like, mm, mm, amen, yes, like that. That hits deep, right? And don't be, don't be discouraged. Just read the Old Testament. Like, everyone talks about, like, I have a dysfunctional family. That's a redundancy, right? All families are dysfunctional. That's the purpose of the first books of the Bible are to show how sin destroys the family, right? So, anyway. But, like, isn't it amazing? He says, like, these are family. Because you can pick your friends. You can pick a significant other. You can make those people, right? You can, you can welcome them in. You can't pick your family. And yet he's saying, even though you can't pick them, you're called to love them and make them into your friends. So that when we realize he has been the perfect son of God for us, he has lived the perfect life, obedient unto death, even death on a cross, vindicated in resurrection, We are freed from the need to be perfect ourselves. And we're free to hunger for it. Hunger after righteousness and see God. Celebrate progress along the way and experience grace. This is, when you think about, he says, like, you know, turning the other cheek. In the last couple of years, in a polarized and divided society, is there any better way to show that you don't belong to the kingdom of this world than that you're free from the need to retaliate? How freakish would you look over the last two years if you were like, like, are you, are you going to respond to that? No. Right? Can, just, can, you, can you begin to see what kind of a movement that would start? And don't you hunger for it? I'll wrap up with this. Connect all the dots. Feel the weight of his perfection. Reach out to God for the righteousness that he commands. He's not saying don't obey. He's saying don't think that you have it in you to even obey. I have to give you everything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Even obey. And I'll give you obedience. And how does God love? What kind of love does God show? Did you hear the example? his son, and reign. He reigns on the righteous, reigns on the unrighteous. Son rises on the just and the unjust. He loves even the people who are no benefit to him. Imagine for a minute your enemies. Imagine for a minute a vile person. Imagine for a minute a person who has hurt you, harmed you, Imagine them kissing you on the cheek. 
Imagine loving them and inviting your enemy to kiss you on the cheek. You can't do it, can you? Not in and of yourself. Now do you see what Christ has overcome? Now do you see what Christ has accomplished? That he has taken you and I, the enemies, and responded in love and welcomed us? He was kissed a kiss of betrayal, struck publicly on the cheek. He was thirsting and abandoned, naked and betrayed, all so that you and I, as God's enemies, would be welcomed back as his friends. He has loved you. Even though you were his enemy. And until you look at the perfection of God and say, I am in need, I need a savior, I need a deliverer, I need a redeemer, I need someone to set me free from my unrighteous deeds, I need someone to set me free from my unrighteous motives, I need, I need someone to set me free from my unrighteous heart, I need someone to clean my unrighteous soul, then and only then, when you need him to do it, will you experience the peace and grace Jesus offered. Until you cry out and say, God save me. I think one of the most powerful things is I heard one author say it this way. It's like you read the Sermon on the Mount, and, and that's like in that respect, like you should read the Sermon on the Mount and cry out to God, God save me from the Sermon on the Mount. God save me from the teachings of Jesus. It's too much. And you can know all the right facts about Jesus, about who he is and what he's done. But until you see yourself reflected in his perfection, you won't see how much you really need him. You won't experience his grace because deep down you don't really think you need it. So I want to invite you. In a moment here, we're going to pray together. And I want to invite you in a couple minutes. You'll have an opportunity for a couple of minutes. Cry out to him now. It's so simple. Realize how you cannot possibly be as perfect as Jesus expects. And simultaneously realize that he receives you anyway. He has offered to you his perfection. All you need is need. All you really need is nothing. Can you come to him with nothing? Can you empty your hands and reach out to Jesus? In a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion and celebrate that Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law. There's two ways to fulfill the law. There are two ways. One is you obey it, right? To be in right standing before the law, your first option is to simply follow it and obey it perfectly. And the second way to be perfect and fulfill the obligations of the law is to pay the penalty if you break it, right? Pay the fine, pay the citation, serve time, serve a sentence, right? There are two ways to fulfill the law. Obey it, or pay for it. And isn't it amazing that the Christian church is invited to a table in which we hear the declaration that Jesus has done both. He is the unleavened bread without blemish or sin, spotless. You can trust him. His motives for you are good. And he is the perfect sacrifice paid willingly and freely on your behalf so that we would be received before God. Remember that last verse, you must be perfect? Put it in the first person to realize how absurd the gospel is. I'll, say, I'll put it in first person, and I invite you to do it the same. 
it's hard to say. This is going to be weird coming out of my mouth. I am perfect because of Christ. I am blameless, spotless, righteous, without flaw or blemish because of Christ. In Christ, I, I lack any single mistake, flaw, or sin. I am perfect in Christ because he has perfectly obeyed and he has paid the penalty that I owed. Let's pray together and thank him for that. Jesus, thank you so much that we get to hear and declare and experience a mystery that you, in your mercy and grace, have done for us what we could never do ourselves. And we can read these expectations of perfection and realize that they are truths proclaimed from heaven over us, that we are spotless and without blemish before the Father. We are reconciled to him. So, Lord, if there's some in this room, they wouldn't call themselves Christians. Might even this morning, they, they hear this good news. Might they see the good news as we take part in the, the bread and the cup? Would you give them the courage and the faith to come to you with need? Might today be the first time they admit they can't be everything they want to be. And instead of trying, they simply reach out to you. Meet them there, Lord. Fulfill your promise to welcome your people, to take those of us who are your enemies and make us your friends. Maybe for the rest of us, we're just weary because we're trying to measure up. We're trying to be something that Jesus can only be for us. Might this morning as we, we take part in communion, might we declare a mystery that in Christ we have every single thing we need. The perfect and spotless Son of God laid down his life for us. He has met the righteous requirements of the law. The perfect, and the perfect and spotless lamb was slain to pay the price that we owed. His resurrection was a vindication that the sacrifice was good and right. We thank you. Renew us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.